Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now your ears do not deceive you you have just entered the cryptid creator corner brought to you by your friends at comic book yeti so without further ado let's get on to the interview this is Brian O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti, and today I'm sitting down with comics creator Chris Ryle to talk about his new dystopian one-shot, The Hollows, published by Image Comics. Actually, we have a lot to cover today with your Zoop campaign, Groom Lake, and Syzygy Publishing, too, so thanks for joining me today, Chris. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, let's, let's start with The Hollows. What's The Hollows all about? So the hollows started from um, with creator Sam Keith and I years ago, we did a uh, Mars attacks comic called Mars attacks Firstborn, And it was a very unique and kind of odd version of Mars attacks. And so after that series was over, Sam and I got talking about what we want to do next. Um, and so Sam, Sam said, well, I'd like to do something with zombies, but not necessarily like your zombies versus robots or a standard zombie kind of thing. Um, and because Sam always works in a very kind of cool off kilter sort of way where the stories don't go the way you expect that they will. And, you know, he sort of focuses more on character than he does on big world building, which I am always charmed by. And so we started with that. We started talking about, well, is there a way to do a zombie story that kind of filters zombies through almost a, a Miyazaki sort of lens? Like, you know, most zombie stories are the dystopian world where, the rich people build their way up into skyscrapers, leave everybody else to fend for themselves amongst the zombies. And it kind of, you know, they all sort of follow that Romero pattern. Um, we started talking about, well, is there a way to, to take that as the initial setup and treat it differently, treat the zombies differently, treat the world differently, treat the setting and sort of the visual aesthetics in a unique way. And of course, everything with Sam becomes a unique thing. And so that was, that was sort of the starting point anyway, was, is there a way to do something different with the idea of a zombie story? Okay, yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot of strong messaging here. I mean, the privilege element really jumped out to me. There's there's one line, I don't meant to take what's yours. I need things, so I came. We all need things. We don't all take them. You know, it, it, we have these strong echoes kind of of our own society. And, you know, in this this dystopian landscape why why choose that and and you know you you've touched a little bit about even on the japanese influences so i'm i'm curious you know with with that angle too yeah i mean i think part of it was probably a reaction to not only the world then but probably even more relevantly so to the world now where where you know in the middle of of any kind of crisis people kind of pull inward and make sure that they're taken care of of all else. You know, we saw that even at the start of the pandemic with all the hoarding of various supplies and things like that. And so there was always a sense of that, certainly in a dystopian or a, a post-apocalyptic kind of world where, 
you know, the, the sort of underlying consensus is that, well, society is probably doomed. So let's just take care of ourselves because that's all we can handle. And so, yeah, you almost start to lose a, a bit of your own humanity in that you start taking things to make sure you're taken care of, but it comes at the expense of others. And so we, we were, you know, just trying to kind of comment on the idea of that, is that society falls apart quicker when you start uh, ignoring the people around you and sort of doing things that are to the broader society, even if it's trying to just t take care of yourself and your own family. And so, you know, we weren't trying to be overly heavy handed, but at the same time, like in that kind of a story where there is a sense of all for uh, just taking care of yourself, that that, that does tend to come through. Um, as far as the setting itself and the idea of, of humanity building themselves up into these massive, like, like almost like the Asgardian Yggdrasil trees, you know, instead of skyscrapers, it was, it was kind of this flawed version of humanity wanting to keep nature as, as kind of this thing front and center and not let this horrible situation going on down below sort of destroy the beautiful aesthetics of what a society could be. But I mean, Ultimately, like all that becomes is a more attractive skyscraper that still shuts out the people that aren't deemed, uh, you know, worthwhile enough to earn their place up in these big fancy trees. And so it, it again, just kind of perpetuates that same idea of the people with means can take care of themselves and people without are just left to uh, see whatever happens. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a, a dangers of technology piece, interestingly, you know, to me, especially focused on nuclear energy. I grew up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but um, we have three nuclear power plants in our backyard, the Secret City, Manhattan Project, the TSCA nuclear incinerator. It was a weird place to grow up during the Cold <laughs> yeah. War, for sure. So I'm particularly curious, you know, kind of why you went that direction with nuclear with world building. I mean, because it, it feels like there is a world where nuclear power is a clean and safe way to power the world, as opposed to certainly fossil fuels or even electricity. Like we keep talking about moving everything from gas to electric. And you wonder, like, can the power grid possibly sustain all of the different uses of electric that we're talking about? So I I think there's probably a world where where nuclear is is a very viable um, and probably the the better type of power source, but still like if it's not handled correctly or, I mean, a lot of it still is just probably a, a spillover from like you're talking about with the Cold War era where we're all afraid of nuclear power or nuclear meltdowns and and all of that. And so there's there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, concern or, or even misguided sense of that that's a thing to totally be avoided. And so you know, again, it was it was just kind of the backdrop of there's ways to kind of do this, but I think if we start getting over reliant on technology and sort of stop thinking about the humanity behind it, then you know, like Kobayashi is the lead scientist in this book, and he's he's kind of trying to keep one foothold in the past where he's not trying to be as reliant on technology and kind of lose lose that uh, connection to humanity that some of his fellow scientists have. Yeah. Well, how did you end up working with, with Sam Keith on the project? You know, I don't remember how we first started working together. Um, I mean, we'd known each other for years, and I, I think Sam had done bits of things here and there for IDW, but the Mars Attacks book was the first thing that he and I did together. And it, it was, again, it was one of those books where it was like ostensibly a Mars Attacks story, but it was really more about the relationship of a sad girl and her sort of doomed father and with this 
backdrop in the distance of Martians attacking and but you barely even saw them. It was more like a Mars attack story, like the movie Signs, where the aliens were there, but not really a part of the story. So I think the people that came to that wanting a big Mars attack story of aliens, you know, disintegrating everybody were uh, probably disappointed. But like I say, <laughs> Sam likes to tell stories that are very much sort of focused on the character. And if, if the character has gone through dark moments, I think that has even more appeal. And so the next thing we talked about was, was this. Um, and then like visually, the, the visual look and feel of the thing, what sort of drove it was we had talked for a while about, there was an old Daredevil comic um, that Frank Miller did. And, and it was one of, it was his, like his two anti-drug issues with the Punisher and we were both talking about this opening scene where a girl like this, this school age girl ODs on, I don't know what it is, heroin or whatever it was. Um, but as she's like having this, this drug freak out, there's like this smoke, this vapor emanating from her mouth. And we're like, as kids, you look at that and go, holy shit, like, is that what drugs do to people? Like, did they burn yeah. you out from within? And right. I think that visual always stayed with us. And so the idea of the hollows, like these sort of empty vessels that were trying to almost pull like the living sort of human essence from them into themselves was driven by that same kind of visual, like the idea of sucking the life force out of somebody. And you see this kind of vaporous trail going from one into the hollows. And so it was all, you know, it's these things you read as a kid, these, these childhood things that that's kind of like still loom large in your psyche. For sure. Yeah. His, his artwork for the hollows was exceptionally raw, um, perhaps more than I've, I've ever seen from any of his other work. So is that, is that an aesthetic that that you wanted from the beginning, or was that something you know he just brought to the table and said, "Hey, Chris, what do you think?" Yeah, that was that was Sam. Like I don't, uh, I would never, you know, presume to tell him art wise. Like I, I sort of lead with you know the the things that I have in mind, like these giant sort of city sized trees and the look of the flight suit that's kind of uh, driven by like you know the old Michelangelo sketches, things like that. But um, I'm sorry, Leonardo. Uh, but but um yeah the, otherwise like if sam wants to use sort of colored pencils or these, these sort of more soft lines and kind of uh you know whatever he wants to do with the art i'm i'm certainly never gonna get in the way <laughs> of but yeah he he wanted to try to do something a little bit different here than like people thought are from the max or even sandman yeah i mean it was really beautiful because it, it really accentuated the characters because there's not as much topography in the background so yeah and it, there's almost like a childlike feel to some of it too which i think uh sort of helps bits of the story and, and certainly with you know the weird little creature like erp i think had a very cartoony feel to it and stuff so it's 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 always fun to sketch out what you want you know a scene or an issue to be and then sam takes it and kind of molds it in his own way like it's a very collaborative thing where i've i've never written full script for sam it's always just been plot style and then sam will flow things in you know often in an entirely different sort of way that has you then recontextualizing the scene or the story and it's i i love that process the kind of the give and take that makes it i don't know just feel like more of a natural collaboration yeah well that's comics right yeah totally that's that's the the purest form yeah yeah so you talked about herb where in the world did this little armless jelly bean like thing come from because it's random um it's completely random yeah and yeah. it was it was i think again the idea of like when we originally said you know zombie story by way of miyazaki like it's certainly not that and i don't think we would ever uh presume to compare ourselves to 
to Miyazaki directly, but it was like, well, are there fun little creatures? Are there things that give this world a bit of a different and, and kind of off kilter feel that uh, a typical post-apocalyptic story, which is usually just darker and more straightforward might have. And so it was, yeah, the idea that if there are other odd little creatures walking around, they're deemed just as unacceptable as as kind of the uh, the people that can't buy their way or or sort of have that that elite status to get their way into these these trees to preserve themselves. So he's just one more of the survivors that uh, you know hopefully brings a little comfort and brings a little like comic relief feel to the book. Oh yeah, the comic relief was definitely felt because he's an oddball little critter for sure. Yeah, so yeah. this was originally published in in like 2012, 2013 by IDW. Is that, that's right? Yeah. And the, the struggle that we've always had with sort of the smaller books when I was at IDW was the company had started doing so many creator owned titles that that kind of becomes the overwhelming um, like opinion of, of what the company's offerings were. And certainly, you know, the stuff that has that built in audience always got the highest orders. And so often the uh, smaller creator-owned books would slip under the radar and maybe not find the audience that you hope they would. And so certainly after like um, reissuing Sam's The Max series and then Sam doing The Max Batman series, I think there was some renewed interest in other works of Sam's. And so we thought, you know, now that I have, uh, Sam and I have the rights completely back from, you know, and it's just ours to do with what we want. Like, let's put it back out there, hopefully reach a broader audience through image and you know if that uh then opens the door to potentially doing more with this world like we you know we're always looking for reasons to work together again yeah yeah it'd be cool to to return to that yeah i think so yeah well this is just me being curious you know after a little bit of time there you know as a visual creative myself more focused on photography as my medium but you know i'll go back and edit things sometimes several times over the years you know looking back on on this and perhaps other projects you know as a as a writer do you ever wish you could change things yeah and i mean yes there are times when i'll read through things and i'll be like oh that sounds clunky or why didn't i say it this way or you know that kind of thing but yeah i don't know i just kind of feel like that can also just become a very slippery slope of then you're rewriting the entire thing and you're sort of presenting it in ways that that i don't know get farther away from what your original intent was and i often find that original intent in stories is preserving so you know maybe i'll clean up a thing or if i find typos or redundancies but for the most part i i usually tend not to do that i will say there was a recent example where i completely went away from that in uh I've been doing this book, There's a Robot. It's a book that I've done for a long time with an artist named Ashley Wood. We've been representing all those stories, but adding new things to the comics also through this new imprint. Um, and there was one of the stories that were all just these artistic, like these big cool spreads that Ash did that I dialogued. And I also hand lettered everything at the time. And I mean, my hand lettering was not up to snuff. And so Ash was relettering it, but because there didn't, there weren't actual scripts that existed back in the day. It was just me kind of lettering as I went, like as I was typing out scripts for him to now reletter this thing. I completely redialogued and sort of rejiggered the entire story. And so that that is one case where, yeah, I just I didn't think it worked before because I was also kind of working one spread every month, and so it was hard to kind of find a real flow for the story. Now sure. I could take all of those pieces at once and make hopefully one more coherent story out of it. 
Yeah, we, well, you just touched on on the, the new imprint, Syzygy. So, you know, I, I'm glad that I got to perfect saying that a while back when I interviewed David Boer, because it's a bit of a tongue twister. But <laughs> and, and I'm really cracked up by the Syzygy, yeah, web, yeah. That, the Syzygy website myself, because you, you probably call yourselves a venture run by Eisner losing team, you know, of Chris Ryle and Ashley Wood. So I <laughs> love this. That's hilarious. Uh, what made you want to start? That's always been our thing. Well, I'm yeah. sorry. No, no. What made you want to start Syzygy? Oh, so Ash and I originally did, before we even did Zombies Mr. Robots, we did stories for this magazine called Doomed, which, uh, again, maybe wasn't the greatest name for a title. Like, <laughs> it became prophetic pretty quickly. But it was it was kind of our version of, of an old creepy and eerie magazine. So we were adapting stories by people like Richard Matheson and and other old you know horror writers and things like that. Um, and so Ash and I got nominated for a Richard Matheson story called Blood Sun. We got a short story, you know, best short story Eisner nomination. And we lost to Paul Pope, which deservedly, like Paul Pope's story was amazing. Um, but so we started using that ever since. Like when we when we did Zombies vs. Robots, we just always called it, you know, from the Eisner losing team of <laughs> um but so Ash and I have liked working together for the last, I don't know, like 15 years. And so we had talked about, you know, when I when I was first leaving IDW, you know, doing our own thing and just kind of, I don't know, going off and and doing whatever we wanted without without any kind of having to worry too much about whether what we wanted to do was was going to fit in with like the more corporate structure of a place. Um, and so that was just kind of the basis for it, which was finding reasons to work together again and and you know, bring in people we like, like David Bohr and, and others, and just hopefully uh, get back to having fun making comics. Well, what can we expect from you as a publisher for kind of the rest of 2022 and sort of looking into 2023? We've got Rain, which we yeah we touched on a little bit there. Yeah, so Rain was the Joe Hill adaptation, and we just finished, um, the final issue came out about a month ago, and so we were just in the midst of finalizing the hardcover collection, which comes out this fall. So that's exciting. Like, I I've overseen so many, you know, collected editions, trade paperbacks and hardcovers and whatnot, but some somehow like, because it's just this thing that just a few of us made on our own, it just feels so special to know that like, we're now going to have a hardcover on our shelves. That was just, uh, you know, the efforts of just a couple people, um, which is exciting. And so then Ash and I also, our final issue of kind of this initial return to Zombies vs. Robots comes out uh, mid-June or late June anyway. Um, I've lined up about four or five other books with other creators that I'm really excited about. Um, I think we probably can't announce them just yet. You know, we're, we're also trying to make sure that when we do that, it sort of fits images, larger marketing and PR cycle for books. Um, but yeah, there, there's some people that I've really wanted to work with for a long time and some books I'm really excited about. And so it's fun. Like I'm, the challenge I'm having is just trying to keep it to a manageable level for me because there's so many books that I want to do, but yeah. then you realize like it can quickly overwhelm your schedule when you're doing it without a staff around you. So I'm, I'm just trying to show restraint and patience and just do a couple at a time and not, uh, you know, not overwhelm. I've never been very good at the restraint patience thing myself. So it's a weird thing, especially after being at a company for 16 years, like to then be freelance, you, you kind of, take on everything you possibly can partly partly because you don't know where the next thing is coming from and so you say yes to everything and then you kind of make yourself crazy because it's too much and so yeah i'm, I'm trying to find that equilibrium that that sweet spot of enough but not too much 
best of luck working on that. That's it's yeah. always challenging. It never but works, I, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been interested actually in covering in more books for younger readers. And I noticed you advocating for Archie on Father's Day on Twitter. So <laughs> do you have any plans for Syzygy to move into that all ages or YA market? Or are, are you seeing projects you like in that that sphere? Yeah. And so so when I left IDW, one of the things that was part of my my leaving was I left with the rights to about 30 different properties that had been developed over the years, not just my stuff or Ash's stuff or things like the hollows, but things that um, I developed with other creators, too. And so I wanted I wanted to try to bring a broad mix of not only genres, but also audiences, um, because reaching younger readers has always been a thing that that you know, I've felt and IDW always felt was important because at a certain point, some of the other publishers were really just honing their skill at reaching their sort of current audiences, but not necessarily growing the next generation of readers in, in the right ways. And so, yeah, that's certainly a thing I'd like to do. Like Image does some of that, but I, I think there's room for more of that, uh, you know, reaching people when they're younger and telling stories that appeal to just a wide range of readers. You know, when we were kids reading this stuff, like all these comic books behind me weren't necessarily aimed at any target demographic. They were just trying to tell fun stories that you could read if you were seven or you could read if you were 20. And they, you know, they mattered to both of those kind of groups. And so that's that's the thing I'd still like to keep doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that I have issues with in the in the new comics paradigm really is it seems like there's so much more of a separation, especially, I guess, with the big two, where it seems like they're it, it, that either it's, a, it's definitely a younger book or it's that core demographic, probably people more our age, you know, who grew up reading them and have, you know, matriculated, I guess, into the mature version of the X-Men. Um, yeah, the nice thing was, like, at least back in the day, that opened up the opportunity for us to then do things like the younger reader comics for, of Marvel or... Uh, Star Wars, but but I think there's still because there's so many different versions of those characters that the stuff that's younger is deemed less important or less canonical or you know because you try to tell these more fun sort of done in one or two part stories that aren't part of the big corporate or company wide crossover event kind of things and so they don't necessarily get treated with the same luster from fans but ultimately the younger fans don't care about that you know. Um, they just want to read fun stories. And so it's like, that was always a focus. You know, there, there was at times where we'd get pushback from older readers who'd be like, well, this is, this is dumb. This is more juvenile than what I'm used to. Like, well, yeah, you're not, it's not necessarily intended for you. Like not everything has to be for you. So you can give those kids their thing that then sort of ages them along and keeps them uh, hopefully, you know, becoming lifelong comic readers. Yeah. I mean, touching on just, your relaxed stories, right? So you have Groom Groom Lake back with a new graphic novel as a crowdfunding campaign on Zoop, you know, and, and, and we left Archibald over a decade ago. So what made you want to come back to that character after all this time? I've played around with him um, here or there over the years. Like after the original Groom Lake, Groom Lake series by Ben Templesmith and I, like I, I sort of wedged him into this company-wide uh, crossover that we did called Infestation that very tangentially had like Ghostbusters and G.I. Joe and Star Trek, not necessarily crossing over directly, but but telling a bigger story involving like my zombies versus robots book. Um, and so I used Archibald as a way to like comment on big crossovers and show up in one shots here or there, but but never did the full proper sequel. And I always wanted to and because he was a character I always had a lot of fun with. Um, 
and I've always had a lot of fun with like UFO conspiracies and and alien stories and things like that. And so I just wanted to see if I could uh, bring him back into the world and in not only in a proper way in a story, but also in a way that kind of touches on modern conspiracy theories, because there's such a whole different round of UFO conspiracies than there was even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. All the stuff with like the official government releases of videos and these tic tacs and, and and you know the the government forming these these committees to study this stuff officially and kind of sort of acknowledging that that these things are real but not necessarily real what they're real something um, and so I, I I wanted to tell another UFO conspiracy story that played off modern conspiracies staying away from like modern. QAnon or you know I, yeah, I didn't yeah, yeah. want to go down a governmental conspiracy route but I wanted to keep it sort of rooted in all the different modern UFO lore yeah so are you a follower of conspiracy theories at all yeah I mean I you know ever since I was a kid I liked that stuff just I like the idea that the world might be more interesting than we think it is and that there could be alien bodies at area 51 and like the rational part of your brain doesn't really except that that's true but it's always been a fun thing to play with like i've been reading comics since i could read it all and so there's always been that that sense of the fantastic has always appealed to me and so the idea of ufos visiting or aliens or what have you is kind of one step closer to a fantastical reality um and so i've i've always had fun reading that stuff and looking at the pictures that are supposedly deemed authentic although again it's like authentic what we don't know but authentic yeah. something um so so yeah it's always been a thing i've paid attention to without sort of really buying into or like i've never gone to the conventions i've never yeah of course. move on i've never gone down those rabbit holes but it's it's always a fun thing to play around with oh yeah i mean i've always loved hearing about it for kicks i mean we lived in colorado we go down to great sand dunes national park and the san luis valley regularly and that valley is just rife with weird sightings and stories they have a, a ufo watchtower down there in alamosa so um, well, and even the airport like the denver airport has all those rumors of you know the underground everything going on it's almost like every state you go to there's some kind of conspiracies or some sort of rumors and sightings and stuff and i just i don't know i find that stuff fun and i've i've had the good luck of getting to know people like tom DeLong and I met Whitley Stryber, who wrote the intro for my old Broom Lake book um, at a party. And he was, you know, showing us this implant that that he said aliens implanted in his ear that when he went to remove it years ago, it traveled from the top of his ear to the bottom of his ear. And just, you know, you hear all these, these stories of people that are either convinced that they absolutely happened or they're very convincing. And I just, you know, I just find that stuff a lot of fun to, to engage with. Yeah. So what is, so this is the graphic novel, it's full graphic novel. So, yes. so what's kind of the elevator pitch? What, you know, what's happening this time around? So it doesn't rely on anybody knowing anything that happened before. Like you, you can sort of jump right in and, and follow what's what. Um, but essentially at the end of the first book, Archibald, who was always sort of kept prisoner, although he was never bothered by it in this base under Groom Lake, managed to escape and get out into the world and goes off um, with his two handlers to presumably try to to have a normal life outside of captivity. And of course, a gray alien is never going to be able to have a normal life. Um, and so at, at the end of the first book, this base was destroyed, like everything at Area 51 was kind of imploded and gone. And so this is now you get a sense that the government is 
rebuilding things. There's there's a uh, um, abductee exchange program going on where you know a, a former round of abductees is being returned to Earth and more people are being taken. And that was one of the things in the Zoop campaign. We we opened the option for people that backed it to you know they can show up as a character who's abducted and then at certain points in the story they're they're sort of mutated and changed. And so it won't it won't even be just drawing you in as a likeness. It'll be drawing you in as a first your likeness, but then a very odd and mutated version of yourself. Um, but yeah, it, it was essentially that. It was like Archibald trying to make his way and understand real life. And of course, that immediately goes wrong and, and sort of pulls them back into a, a story and a conspiracy that they had hoped to be, you know, forever away from. Well, and this time around, you're working with Nelson Daniel on this, right? Yeah, Nelson's doing the art and the colors. Um, and he's a guy that, again, like, I don't know, a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, like I just keep looking for ways to work with them over and over. So I originally met Nelson as the colorist of things like Wild Blue Yonder. And um, he colored Gabriel Rodriguez on the Eisner nominated Little Nemo Return to Slumberland book. But he also drew and colored Judge Dredd for a couple of years. Um, he drew and colored this uh, Stephen King, Joe Hill adaptation that he and I did together. And I just, I love that not only his color palette and his sort of color sense is, I just find so unique and cool, but he's, he's really good at handling not only sort of graphic violent scenes, if a, a thing calls for that, but also very whimsical or humorous, like body language and ridiculous settings. Like he's good at doing both and this story called for both. And so, yeah, we're just excited to, to have reason to work together again. Yeah, that visual style seems perfect for an alien with bad habits like our friend Archibald. So, <laughs> yeah, because to him, they're not bad habits. Like he he is amused by the fact that humans are are so intent on damaging themselves that they'll smoke and eat terrible things knowing they're bad for them. Whereas to him, like he can smoke a bunch of cigarettes and he can eat a bunch of crap and it doesn't have any effect on his body. And and we actually kind of find out why that is so in this story. Um you know, he doesn't get a full origin story or anything like that, but he, we do find out some things that uh, we didn't know about him before that that are things that, you know, when you think about these stories years later, you kind of go, oh, man, I wish I'd done that or I should have done this. And so you you kind of figure things out along the way. And then so this is a way to to try to work in stuff that I kind of wish I had tackled the first time around. Oh, sure. Yeah. So why did you choose Zoop this time? Um, partly because running this imprint through image, like it's me and Ashley Wood, who's, who's the art director and artist, but a lot of it is like, a lot of it is me handling a lot of different sides of, of making comics on my own now. And so Zoop offers a bit more of a partnering kind of thing where they're, they're helping you with the marketing and the PR and some of the more direct fulfillment and all the details behind that in, um, in ways that I just... I appreciate the support and the help. And again, I just, I think because I had always been in a company doing the stuff, I like the idea of doing things as a team and again, collaborating even on that part of the business. And so, you know, I just, I, I like the guys over there and I think they've done a good job, especially with books like the John Paul Leone charity book and the Ukraine charity book. And so just felt like a, a good first effort, a good first crowdfunding effort for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan and, and crew have a good thing going over there, and they're they're definitely yeah. growing really fast. So yeah, they're doing they're doing an awful lot of books, and they've been getting a lot of good support and reach. And so yeah, I'm I'm excited doing all this through them. 
Well, are we missing any other projects? I know you, you're the EP for Lock and Key on Netflix, which is a family favorite. So I hope we're not done. Oh, you know, great. There. Yeah. No, yeah. no. Third season launches uh, toward the end of summer. So that's uh, that's always exciting. Um, I, I am the EP on a on an adaptation of Eve Stranger, which is a graphic novel that um, a writer named David Barnett and artist Philip Bond did through Shelley Bond's Black Crown imprint at IDW that um, got optioned a number of months ago by BBC Studios. And so we're all working to try to make that into an actual TV show. So yeah, like I say, since leaving IDW, just been casting nets in, in every possible direction. So hopefully lots of other cool things happening. Staying very busy. Trying, trying, yeah. Oh, where can people find you online? So I'm mostly Chris underscore Ryle um, at Instagram, at, on Twitter. And then um, World of Syzygy is also the, the larger Syzygy company's um, handle. So that's where we're posting you know, previews of books and covers and information, things like that. Cool. Well, I, I know we've covered a lot of ground today and on lots of different projects. I hope everyone gets out, picks up The Hollows. It's this really visually unique book with Keith and his rawest best. And and you don't have to be a dystopian fan for me. It's it's not normally my pocket, but you know, being willing to accept, you know, that that all our mistakes along the, the journey, finding the best version of ourselves, that, that's really what I got out of it. So great. Yeah. Real, yeah. real pleasure to talk to you, Jay Byron. Yeah, yeah. And don't forget to head on over to Zoot and back Groom Lake. Uh, the conspiracy theorists will definitely appreciate you continuing to support their narratives. So excellent. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to push things along for them. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining me today and coming on the show to hang out. Yeah, great. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Eddie. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.